Section two of Tales of Daring and Danger by G. A. Henty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bears and Decoits, Chapter two. Just as I was getting strong enough to walk and was beginning to think of making my escape, a band of five or six fellows, armed to the teeth, came in and made signs that I was to go with them. It was evidently an arranged thing. The girls only were surprised but they were at once turned out, and as we started I could see two crouching figures in the shade with their cloths over their heads. I had a native garment thrown over my shoulders, and in five minutes after the arrival of the fellows found myself on my way. It took us some six hours before we reached our destination, which was one of those natural rock citadels. Had I been in my usual health I could have done the distance in an hour and a half, but I had to rest constantly, and was finally carried rather than helped up. I had gone not unwillingly, for the men were clearly, by their dress, decoits of the Deccan, and I had no doubt that it was intended either to ransom or exchange me. At the foot of this natural castle were some twenty or thirty more robbers, and I was led to a rough sort of arbor in which was lying, on a pile of maize straw, a man who was evidently their chief. He rose, and we exchanged salams. "'What is your name, Sahib? he asked in Mahratta. "'Hastings. Lieutenant Hastings,' I said. "'And yours?' "'Sibaji Punt,' he said. "'This was bad. I had fallen into the hands of the most troublesome, most ruthless, and most famous of the dacoit leaders. Over and over again he had been hotly chased, but had always managed to get away.' and when I last heard anything of what was going on, four or five troops of native police were scouring the country after him. He gave an order which I did not understand, and a wretched Bombay writer, I suppose a clerk of some money-lender, was dragged forward. Sivaji Punt spoke to him for some time, and the fellow then told me in English that I was to write at once to the officer commanding the troops, telling him that I was in his hands and should be put to death directly he was attacked. Ask him, I said, if he will take any sum of money to let me go. Sivaji shook his head very decidedly. A piece of paper was put before me and a pen and ink, and I wrote as I had been ordered, adding, however, in French, that I had brought myself into my present position by my own folly and would take my chance, for I well knew the importance which the government attached to Sivaji's capture. I read out loud all that I had written in English, and the interpreter translated it. Then the paper was folded, and I addressed it, the officer commanding, and I was given some chupatis and a drink of water, and allowed to sleep. The dacoits had apparently no fear of any immediate attack. It was still dark, although morning was just breaking, when I was awakened, and was got up to the citadel. I was hoisted rather than climbed, Two men standing above with a rope tied around my body so that I was half hauled, half pushed up the difficult places, which would have taxed all my climbing powers had I been in health. The height of this mass of rock was about a hundred feet. The top was fairly flat with some depressions and risings, and about eighty feet long by fifty wide. It had evidently been used as a fortress in ages past. Along the side facing the hill were the remains of a rough wall. In the center of a depression was a cistern, some four feet square, lined with stonework, and in another depression a gallery had been cut, 
leading to a subterranean storeroom or chamber. This natural fortress rose from the face of the hill at a distance of a thousand yards or so from the edge of the plateau, which was fully two hundred feet higher than the top of the rock. In the old days it would have been impregnable, and even at that time it was an awkward place to take, for the troops were armed only with brown vests, and rifled cannon were not thought of. Looking round, I could see that I was some four miles from the point where I had descended. The camp was gone, but running my eye along the edge of the plateau, I could see the tops of tents a mile to my right, and again two miles to my left. Turning round and looking down into the wide valley, I saw a regimental camp. It was evident that a vigorous effort was being made to surround and capture the dacoits, since troops had been brought up from Bombay. In addition to the troops above and below, there would probably be a strong police force acting on the face of the hill. I did not see all these things at the time, for I was, as soon as I got to the top, ordered to sit down behind the parapet, a fellow armed to the teeth squatting down by me, and signifying that if I showed my head above the stones he would cut my throat without hesitation. There were, however, sufficient gaps between the stones to allow me to have a view of the crest of the gut, while below my view extended down to the hills behind Bombay. It was evident to me now why the dacoits did not climb up into the fortress. There were dozens of similar crags in the face of the guts, and the troops did not as yet know their whereabouts. It was a sort of blockade of the whole face of the hills which was being kept up, and there were, probably enough, several other bands of dacoits lurking in the jungle. There were only two guards and myself on the rock plateau. I discussed with myself the chances of my overpowering them and holding the top of the rock till help came. But I was greatly weakened, and was not a match for a boy, much less for the two stalwart Mahratas. Besides, I was by no means sure that the way I had been brought up was the only possible path to the top. The day passed off quietly. The heat on the bare rock was frightful, but one of the men, seeing how weak and ill I really was, fetched a thick rug from the storehouse, and with the aid of a stick made a sort of lean-to against the wall, under which I lay sheltered from the sun. Once or twice during the day I heard a few distant musket shots, and once a sharp heavy outburst of firing. It must have been three or four miles away, but it was on the side of the gut, and showed that the troops or police were at work. My guards looked anxiously in that direction, and uttered sundry curses. When it was dusk, Sivaji and eight of the dacoits came up. From what they said, I gathered that the rest of the band had dispersed, trusting either to get through the line of their pursuers, or, if caught, to escape with slight punishment. The men who remained being too deeply concerned in murderous outrages to hope for mercy. Sivaji himself handed me a letter, which the man who had taken my note had brought back in reply. Major Knapp, the writer, who was the second in command, said that he could not engage the government, but that if Lieutenant Hastings was given up, the act would certainly dispose the government to take the most merciful view possible, but that if, on the contrary, any harm was suffered by Lieutenant Hastings, every man taken would be at once hung. C.V.G. did not appear put out about it. I do not think he expected any other answer, and imagined that his real object in writing was simply to let them know that I was a prisoner, and to enable him to better paralyze the attack upon a position which he no doubt considered all but impregnable. 
I was given food and then allowed to walk as I chose upon the little plateau, two of the dacoits taking post as sentries in the steepest part of the path, while the rest gathered, chatting and smoking, in the depression in front of the storehouse. It was still light enough for me to see for some distance down the face of the rock, and I strained my eyes to see if I could discern any other spot at which an ascent or descent was possible. The prospect was not encouraging. At some places the face fell sheer away from the edge, and so evident was the impracticability of escape that the only place which I glanced at twice was the western side, that is, the one away from the hill. Here it sloped gradually for a few feet. I took off my shoes and went down to the edge. Below, some ten feet, was a ledge, onto which, with care, I could get down, but below that was a sheer fall of some fifty feet. As a means of escape it was hopeless, but it struck me that, if an attack was made, I might slip away and get on to the ledge. Once there I could not be seen except by a person standing where I now was, just on the edge of the slope, a spot to which it was very unlikely that anyone would come. The thought gave me a shadow of hope and returning to the upper end of the platform i lay down and in spite of the hardness of the rock was soon asleep the pain of my aching bones woke me up several times and once just as the first tinge of dawn was coming i thought i could hear movements in the jungle i raised myself somewhat and i saw that the sounds had been heard by the dacoits for they were standing listening and some of them were bringing spare firearms from the storehouse in evident preparation for attack. As I afterwards learned, the police had caught one of the dacoits trying to effect his escape, and by means of a little of the ingenious torture to which the Indian police then frequently resorted, when their white officers were absent, they obtained from him the exact position of Sivaji's band, and learned the side from which the ascent must be made, that the dacoit and his band were still upon the slopes of the guts they knew, and were gradually narrowing their circle. But there were so many rocks and hiding places that the process of searching was a slow one, and the intelligence was so important that the news was off at once to the colonel, who gave orders for the police to surround the rock at daylight and to storm it if possible. The garrison was so small that the police were alone ample for the work supposing that the natural difficulties were not altogether insuperable. Just at daybreak, there was a distant noise of men moving in the jungle, and the coit halfway down the path fired his gun. He was answered by a shout and a volley. The decoits hurried out from the chamber and lay down on the edge, where, sheltered by the parapet, they commanded the path. They paid no attention to me, and I kept as far away as possible. The fire began, a quiet, steady fire a shot at a time and in strong contrast to the rattle kept up from the surrounding jungle but every shot must have told as man after man who strove to climb that steep path fell it lasted only ten minutes and then all was quiet again the attack had failed as i knew it must do for two men could have held the place against an army a quarter of an hour later a gun from the crest above spoke out and a round shot whistled above our heads. Beyond annoyance, an artillery fire could do no harm, for the party could be absolutely safe in the store cave. The instant the shot flew overhead, however, Sivaji punt beckoned to me and motioned me to take my seat on the wall facing the guns. Hesitation was useless, and I took my seat with my back to the dacoits and my face to the hill. 
One of the dacoits, as I did so, pulled off the native cloth which covered my shoulders, in order that I might be clearly seen. Just as I took my place, another round shot hummed by, but then there was a long interval of silence. With a field glass every feature must have been distinguishable to the gunners, and I had no doubt that they were waiting for orders as to what to do next. I glanced round and saw that with the exception of one fellow squatted behind the parapet some half-dozen yards away, clearly as a sentry to keep me in place, all the others had disappeared. Some, no doubt, were on sentry down the path. The others were in the store beneath me. After half an hour's silence, the guns spoke out again. Evidently the gunners were told to be as careful as they could, for some of the shots went wide on the left, others on the right. A few struck the rock below me. The situation was not pleasant, but I thought that at a thousand yards they ought not to hit me, and I tried to distract my attention by thinking out what I should do under every possible contingency. Presently I felt a crash and a shock, and fell backwards to the ground. I was not hurt, and on picking myself up I saw that the ball had struck the parapet to the left, just where my guard was sitting, and he lay covered with its fragments. His turban lay some yards behind him. Whether he was dead or not, I neither knew nor cared. I pushed down some of the parapet where I had been sitting, dropped my cap on the edge outside, so as to make it appear that I had fallen over, and then, picking up the man's turban, ran to the other end of the platform and scrambled down to the ledge. Then I began to wave my arms about. I had nothing on above the waist, and in a moment I saw a face with a uniform cap peer out through the jungle, and a hand was waved. I made signs to him to make his way to the foot of the perpendicular wall of rock beneath me. I then unwound the turban, whose length was, I knew, amply sufficient to reach to the bottom, and then looked round for something to write on. I had my pencil still in my trousers' pocket, but not a scrap of paper. I picked up a flattish piece of rock and wrote on it, Get a rope ladder quickly. I can haul it up. Ten men in garrison. They are all under cover. Keep on firing to distract their attention. I tied the stone to the end of the turban and looked over. A non-commissioned officer of the police was already standing below. I lowered the stone. He took it, waved his hand to me, and was gone. An hour passed. It seemed an age. The round shot still rang overhead, and the fire was now much more heavy and sustained than before. Presently I again saw a movement in the jungle and Norworthy's face appeared, and he waved his arm in greeting. Five minutes more, and a party were gathered at the foot of the rock, and a strong rope was tied to the cloth. I pulled it up. A rope ladder was attached to it, and the top rung was in a minute or two in my hands. To it was tied a piece of paper with the words, Can you fasten the ladder? I wrote on the paper, No, but I can hold it for a lightweight. I put the paper with a stone in the end of the cloth and lowered it again, and then I sat down, tied the rope round my waist, got my feet against two projections, and waited. There was a jerk, and then I felt someone was coming up the rope ladder. The strain was far less than I expected, but the native policeman who came up first did not weigh half so much as an average Englishman. There were now two of us to hold. The officer in command of the police came up next, then Norworthy then a dozen more police. I explained the situation, and we mounted to the upper level. Not a soul was to be seen. Quickly we advanced and took up a position to command the door of the underground chamber. 
while one of the police waved a white cloth from his bayonet as a signal to the gunners to cease firing. Then the police officer hailed the party within the cave. Sivaji Punt, you may as well come out and give yourself up. We are in possession, and resistance is useless. A yell of rage and surprise was heard, and the dacoits, all desperate men, came bounding out, firing as they did so. Half of their number were shot down at once, and the rest, after a short, sharp struggle, were bound hand and foot. That is pretty well all the story, I think. Sivaji Punt was one of the killed. The prisoners were all either hung or imprisoned for life. I escaped my blowing up for having gone down the guts after the bear, because, after all, Sivaji Punt might have defied their force for months had I not done so. It seemed that the scoundrel Raman had taken back word that I was killed. Norworthy had sent down a strong party who found the two dead bears, and who, having searched everywhere without finding any signs of my body, came to the conclusion that I had been found and carried away, especially as they ascertained that natives use that path. They had offered rewards, but nothing was heard of me till my note, saying I was in Sivaji's hands, arrived. And did you ever see the women who carried you off? No, Mary, I never saw them again. I did, however, after immense trouble, succeed in finding out where it was that I had been taken to. I went down at once, but found the village deserted. Then, after much inquiry, I found where the people had moved to, and sent messages to the women to come up to the camp. But they never came, and I was reduced at last to sending them down two sets of silver bracelets, necklaces, and bangles, which must have rendered them the envy of all the women on the guts. They sent back a message of grateful thanks, and I never heard of them afterwards. No doubt their relatives, who knew that their connection with the dacoits was now known, would not let them come. However, I had done all I could, and I have no doubt the women were perfectly satisfied. So you see, my dear, that the Indian bear, small as he is, is an animal which it is well to leave alone at any rate, when he happens to be up on the side of a hill while you are at the foot. End of section 2